0: In these uh, two verses, I suppose the key question is: what is the form of sound words? If you get that right in your mind, then the application will follow naturally. Uh, these words are called in verse 15, 14, The good thing, that good thing, it is words that are sound in verse number thirteen. And it is that word sound that I think begins to point us in the right direction. Because that word is used throughout the past epistles in a very particular way. And when you link, when you link the verses that speak of something that sound, I think you get an answer uh, regarding what these form of sound words actually is. You go back to 1 Timothy chapter 1, and you'll see it here. Right, today I want to ask you, please, have your Bibles out. We are going to turn to quite a number of scriptures uh, throughout the course of the introduction today. And so please bear with me and I'll try to go slowly and we'll see the scriptures uh, together. Now you see in verse number nine of 1 Timothy chapter 1 that Paul makes mention of the law being not made for the righteous man. He's referring, of course, to God's moral law. But then he gives us a list of sins. In essence, the law of God given to rebuke sinners of their sinful ways. And you go down to verse number 10, For whoremongers, for them that defile themselves with mankind, for men stealers, for liars, for perjured persons, and if there be any other thing that is contrary, and here's the word, to sound doctrine. And this idea of soundness, again, in that setting, is in relationship to the law and the word of God. Things that are contrary to sound doctrine are things that are contrary to the law of God. And of course, a sound doctrine also, as it continues in verse number 11, according to the glorious gospel. So sound doctrine, these things that are sound teaching, and the word doctrine, of course, just simply means teaching, sound teaching refers back to the things according to the law of God, but also in verse 11 to the gospel itself. These are things of sound doctrine. And then turn across to 2 Timothy chapter 4. Of course, I'm passing over the reference in our chapter, but 2 Timothy chapter 4, and the verse number 3, where it says, For the time will come when they will not endure, and here's a term again, sound Doctrine, but will after their own lusts, so heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth. And again, this section is very instructive when you think about these things that are sound. Truth is used as a parallel in verse number four, but the word is also used in verse number two preach the word. Though the time will come when they will not endure the word. You can see how these terms can be used in a very easy parallel. But the word that's referred to in verse number two of chapter four could take us all the way back into chapter three regarding the scriptures. The scriptures give them the inspiration of God, the man of God being perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. I charge thee therefore preach the word. And whilst we've got long sentences, that's the very simple order. The Scriptures reveal Christ. The Scriptures are enough for the man of God to preach to the people of God. And therefore, Timothy, preach the word even though they will not endure the word. Sound doctrine. Then look in Titus again. We're looking at these three pastoral epistles. Titus chapter 1. And the verse number 9, regarding the bishop, the elder, verse 7, the bishop must be blameless. And then verse number 9, holding fast the faithful word, as he hath been taught, that he may be able by, and here's the term again, by sound doctrine. So you hold the word, the word of faith, the faithful, the reliable, the word of truth, the Bible, Hold that fast and then you will be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. Again, those who are unruly, those who are teaching and living against the word of God. You've got to know the word to exhort and convince those who are against the word. Just another time we're seeing this term sound being used in some form of parallel term to the concept of the scriptures and the word of God. Then one other portion Titus chapter 2 and the verse number 1, where Paul tells Titus, Speak thou the things which become sound doctrine. And here's another layer being added on. And the idea here is that the sound doctrine will lead to a godly life. And so he instructs the aged men, Be sober, grave, temperate. And here the word is used again, sound in faith. These things are, are coming together. And so what you have is idea, you've got the idea: well, sound doctrine will lead to sound living. The doctrine is sound, and the lifestyle that follows is a sound. But you see, all of these things—they all come together in connection with the Word of God, the Scripture of Truth. The word itself, "sound," is the word that we get our word "hygienic" from, and it is the word for health, healthy doctrine. It's used that way. I say, translate it as health. In 3 John, verse number 2, health is used. It's also used in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 5. They that be whole, same word, need not a physician. So this idea of soundness or healthiness, it is in connection with the very Word of God, the Word of God that leads to soundness and healthiness. So we'll come back to those things later on. So back then to 2 Timothy, when you see how the word is used, uh, throughout the past epistles, this word sound, you get this idea, hold fast the form of sound words. Timothy is to hold tenaciously to these words. He's to do so in love. He's to do so sincerely in love and faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. And he is to keep these things. But when you look at these verses, you see, you see a very clearly concept regarding the scriptures here. Because what Paul is telling Timothy to hold fast to is those things that he has heard through the ministry of Paul. Hold fast the form of sound words which thou hast heard of me. And then verse 14, the good thing which was committed unto thee. And so here you're seeing that Paul is saying The good, the sound words, are the words that I have taught you, Timothy. You're to hold fast to those, and you are to keep them. And so my thesis, or my premise today, is that this term, the form of sound words, is a reference to the New Testament Scriptures that are being formed. Yes, it's a reference to the Gospel. We'll see that. But more than that, it's a reference to the breadth of apostolic teaching that are being committed to writing in the New Testament scriptures that you hold in your hands today. You see, the New Testament is a collection of writings written by or under apostolic authority. That was one of the key criteria used by the early church in determining the New Testament canon that it had apostolic authority, an apostolic writer, or under apostolic oversight. And so Paul is urging Timothy, in essence, to treat his writings in the same way that Timothy would treat the Old Testament. That's the idea here, and I'm going to try to prove that. But the idea in these words is that he's telling Timothy, treat my writings on a power with the Old Testament scriptures. You see, Paul, and if you see in your handout there, you'll see that have three headings in terms of our outline of our introduction. Now, I don't know how far we'll get. We, we may stop at the introduction today. Uh, I, I don't know. We'll see how things develop as we go forward in this, in this study. But as I was working on the, the introduction, I, I put these things down quickly, and then it got bigger and bigger and bigger, and it, it grew out of all proportion. So it's no longer really an introduction, uh, but it is what it is. First of all, please understand that Paul understood the authority of the apostle of Christ. I'm going to build an argument here Uh, And to try to convince you that what is being taught here is indeed the doctrine of the New Testament Scriptures. And Paul understood the authority of the office of the apostle. Turn back to Ephesians chapter 4. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul gives us the outline of the gifts that Christ has given to the church. He is risen, he's ascended, and then verse number 11, And he gave some apostles and some prophets. He's emphasizing the gift of the apostles to the church. Yes, not the only gift. There's evangelists, there's pastors, teachers. But these gifts are given for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry. Till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature, the fullness of Christ, verse number 13. So the gift that Christ has given to the church is for the benefits of the people and the gift, the first gift is the gift of the apostle from which these other gifts flow. I know that because what's taught in chapter 2 of Ephesians, chapter 2, verse number 20, where he, the Paul is referring to the household of God, that united household of Jews and Gentiles, and they are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Now, we rightly, we we strongly reject the doctrine of apostolic succession as taught by the Roman Catholic Church. And this is one of the reasons why. Because the apostles were foundational. They were not intended to be continuing. They were a foundation office for the foundation of the New Testament church upon which the church is being built. But you'll see here again the authority of the apostles. They are serving as the foundation. And the reference to prophets here is broadening out this idea because in the New Testament there were those others who prior to the canon being formed were being given direct words from God to give to the people. They were truly prophets in that sense. The Word of God came to them and they passed on the Word of God but these functions were foundational. They were not intended to continue through the centuries. See, Paul... He understood the concept of the apostle, and that even attached to the very concept was that of authority. There's a Bible scholar called Ritterboss, he says this Research has shown that the formal structure of the apostolate is derived from the Jewish legal system, in which a person may be given the legal power to represent another. And in Jewish terms, the one who was able to represent another was called the sheliac of a man. And that term is the term for the apostle. That in the very concept of apostolic doctrine was the idea that the apostle as the sheliac of Christ represented Christ with the authority of Christ. You've got to understand that concept. And so Paul is saying, I'm an apostle but I understand what that means in terms of the apostolate. You see, to receive Christ is to receive his apostle. And to receive his apostle is to receive Christ himself. You see, turn across, please, to John chapter 13. We might use the term the power of attorney. The sheliac has the power of attorney. Uh, That's kind of almost a parallel concept in our our own uh, legal speech. But the idea is that the sheliac, the apostle of the man, is to be received as the man himself, and Christ taught that. Matthew chapter 10, He that receiveth you receiveth me. But here in John 13, the verse number 20, you see the same idea. Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that receiveth whomsoever I send receiveth me. And he that receiveth me Receiveth him that sent me. Now, he's taking it by. Of course, Christ, of course, is the first uppercase A apostle. He's the one who's been sent apostle to his Father into the world. And so he then sends his church, his apostles. But look what it says again He that receiveth whomsoever I apostle, receiveth me. You see the very concept here and how it's undergirded. And of course, he then taught over in John chapter 15 that this apostolic band would then be guided supernaturally by the Spirit. John 15 and the verse number 26. But the Comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth, which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of me, and ye shall also bear witness, because ye have been with me from the beginning. And to the Spirit is given as a Spirit of truth to guide these men... Into all truth, as they testify of Christ, chapter sixteen, verse thirteen. When he, the Spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth. Now, I am very much of the opinion that that promise is a promise given to the apostles. Now, there is a sense, of course, that we've unction. First John talks; we've unction from above. We we have this idea that we don't need special, if you like, unction a Gnostic unction, the Spirit of God. But here, the the very direct promise here is given to the apostles. And as they were guided into all truth, so we are guided through their ministry. We're guided by the ministry of the Spirit of God through the apostles. And so Paul understood all this. He understood the authority of the apostle of Christ Jesus, that as an apostle of Christ, he had the power to represent Christ. As one also who's inspired the Spirit of God. See, Paul, therefore, secondly, giving his understanding of the apostle, he also then also asserted his identity as an apostle of Christ. Again, okay, we're back to Second Timothy. And I, I drew your attention to these words last week, very briefly, but verse number 11, word unto, I am appointed a preacher and an apostle. Paul very deliberately uses these three terms, as we saw last time, to emphasize his authority as one who brings the very words of Christ to the church. Of course, back in chapter 1, the same, in the very verse 1, he says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. He understands he's an apostle as one who is chosen of God. This is Saul of Tarsus again the one who breathed out threatens into the church, and he's, he's now an apostle. He comes as a representative of Christ Jesus. And so he fought to defend that. You go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Remember how he had to fight this? There were those who denied he was an apostle, and they denied in part that he did not have the proper criteria to be an apostle. You see, the early church understood this much better than we have done today. They understood that to be an apostle, you had to be an appointed of Christ himself, and you had to be an eyewitness of Christ. And so verse number 7, he says this, After that he was seen of James, then of all the apostles. And last of all, he was seen of me also. As one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles, that I'm not meet to be called an apostle because I persecute the church of God. But he's defending his apostle in the fact that he's saying that Christ did appear to me last of all. It's another reason why there are no apostles today. And to say you're an apostle today is to say you've seen the risen Christ, some foolish to say that. But they then deny the very Bible because Paul says, last of all, he appeared to me. Paul understands he is the last of the apostles. And so he defends that. He defends in Galatians, he defends the fact that he received the gospel of Christ himself. Galatians chapter 1, verse 11, The gospel which is preached of me is not after man, for I neither received it of man, neither was I taught it but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. He's claiming his apostolic authority. And therefore, his teaching as an apostle holds the authority of Christ. Remember, all this comes together. How does Paul understand the apostle as one who represents Christ? But he's saying, here, I'm one of those. I'm an apostle. Therefore, my words come with the very authority of Christ himself. So, we're in 1 Corinthians. You turn back across the page in my Bible and you look at the verse number 37 of chapter 14. 1 Corinthians 14, verse number 37. If any man think of himself, or think himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge the things that I write unto you are the commandments of the Lord. Here he's saying he's writing the very commandments of the Lord. And yet there were some when they were saying, Oh, I'm, I'm pretty talented. He's saying, humbly, he's saying, I'm the least of the apostles, but what I write is the very commandments of the Lord. He says, I, I represent Christ and his writings. You see the commands that Paul gives in 1 Corinthians, many of those commands are not recorded in the Gospels as coming from Christ's own words. They came from Christ but they're communicated with the authority of Christ through the apostle as much as if they were the very words of Christ himself. It's often said that the red-letter editions of the Bible have a problem because the whole Bible should be in red because all the Bible is Christ's words. I'm not saying there's some helpfulness in having the red-letter edition. I'm not against it entirely. But as a concept, it is flawed in some degree, in that all the New Testament is Christ's words. As of course is the old. Paul understood this. He says in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, Since ye seek a proof of Christ speaking in me. That was a challenge. They were questions of apostleship, and they wanted proof. You say that Christ is speaking in you. Approve well, prove it. And of course he, he proved it in abundance. He was an apostle of Christ. So then please turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. One last proof text on this. Paul understood that his identity as an apostle indicated that he didn't speak with the authority of Christ. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verse number 15. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord that we which are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. You see the words there? We say unto you, by the word of the Lord. He's bringing the very word of God, the word of Christ, to the church. So as we seek to prove this thesis, that the form of sound words refers to the New Testament Scriptures, I'm saying, first of all, Paul understood the authority of the apostle. Secondly, he understood and asserted his identity as an apostle. And thirdly, he therefore understood that his ministry was a ministry of delivering divine truth. That was what his ministry was all about. And so again, back, perhaps keep a finger in Thessalonians, we'll turn back there very soon. But in 2 Timothy chapter 3 again, note how he describes it. He understands his ministry as delivering divine truth. Hold fast the form of sound words which thou hast heard of me. And in the parallel, that good thing which was committed unto thee, keep. He understands, the delivering a deposit of divine truth. Paul tells Timothy to keep this. The word committed that's used there in verse number 14 speaks of something entrusted to someone for their safe keeping. It indicates again Paul's understanding of the value of what he taught. He was giving something of precious value, the divine truth that comes from Christ himself. When we think of Jude, verse 3, the faith once delivered unto the saints. But for our purposes, this apostolic truth, and here, of course, we're not just speaking of Paul, although our attentions on Paul, this apostolic truth was committed to writing. We saw it in 1 Corinthians. The writings are the commandments of the Lord. But you also see it in 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. And here again we're just seeing, I'm just building up this argument, we're seeing Paul again asserting his authority. If any man obey not our word by this epistle, note that man. Now he's saying that his, his epistle has the authority that would govern the actions of the church. Here's a a Pharisee of the Pharisee. Here's a man versed in the Jewish Scriptures, and he's now telling this church, this epistle should govern your actions in this area, that has this authority whereby a man could be excluded from the church of God, have no company with him, that he may be ashamed. It's an assertion of the apostolic authority, of the writings of Paul. Go back again, please, to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, now to verse number 15. And here you'll see a very clear parallel with 2 Timothy chapter 2. Therefore, brethren, stand fast, and hold the traditions which you have been taught, whether by word or, or epistle. The writings... So the apostle comes, stands and preaches and says to the congregation, I'm bringing the very words of Christ. And the congregation listens to that and go, yep, 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 get that. But he's now saying, my writings carry the same authority. Though I'm not there in person, the fact I've written these things, these are the very words of Christ and you've got to hold these things as you would hold the Old Testament Scriptures. You see, that's what the Thessalonians knew. They knew that when Paul was there in person, don't you remember that, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2? That when he preached in person, they received the word of God, which they heard of us. It's 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. You received it not as the word of man, but as it is in truth, the word of God. But he's now saying in the second letter that you receive these things, you hold them fast, whether by word or epistle. So the way you treated my preaching... Treat my writings as the word of God. So the apostles, Paul is saying here, present the very words of Christ. And these words carry authority in the church. This is an interesting aside. Did you notice how often Paul speaks of his writings being read out in public? Isn't that not the case we're in Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse number 27. I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read unto all the holy brethren. Now, in Jewish culture, what was read out publicly? In the synagogues. The Old Testament scriptures. And Paul is in essence saying, you treat my writings The same way you treat the Old Testament Scriptures, you read them in public, and they come with the authority of Christ as the very words of God. I did mention that it's not just true for Paul. Peter also has the same assertion. Turn, please, to 2 Peter chapter 3. This was one of those things that became an addition this morning, because I read this chapter this morning in my own Bible readings. So 2 Peter chapter 3. And the verse number 2, Peter is reminding the church again of uh, of the things that are true. And he says in verse 2, that ye may be mindful of the words which are spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. The prophets and the apostles. And I believe the holy apostles there is referring back to the Old Testament apostles there. Those who brought the Old Testament scriptures to bear. Because you'll see that over in Second uh, Peter chapter one, the verse number nineteen. Second Peter one, verse number nineteen, where he says, "We have also a more sure word of prophecy. Whereunto you do well that you take heed." And then verse number twenty, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, or kind of comes privately. But the prophecy came not in all time by the will of God, but holy men of God speak as they are moved by the Holy Ghost. So the Old Testament prophets, are holy men, moved by the Holy Ghost, and you get a chapter 3, and Paul says, oh, and by the way, or Peter says, us apostles as well. We have the same authority and the same weight as the Old Testament apostles. And so, Paul is reminding us, reminding Timothy, that his teachings and his writings carry the very authority of Christ Jesus and was to be treated as the inspired word of God. The basis of our faith. The only rule of faith and practice. The things that we should believe. and The life we should live as the commands of Christ to be obeyed without question. Of course, Peter taught that Paul wrote the scriptures. I turned away from 2 Timothy chapter 3, but it's there also, as they do also the other scriptures. I thought to myself, should I just take time on this? You know all this. Is it worth taking? We've taken the gossip of half an hour now going through this this matter. He said, I want you to understand that what you have is the scriptures of truth. And what you have in your possession is the very word of God. And must be treated as the very word of God. With reverence and as the rule that governs what you believe and how you live. Oh, we know that. Well, good. And I reminded you of that again today, and that's a good thing for all of us, that we grind at this again, and we should do this regularly, that our young people understand that we have a Bible here. Because when you begin to undermine the authority of the New Testament, as is happening in our culture today, that they didn't understand, this is a 2,000-year-old book, When you begin to undermine that, what you're undermining is the fact that the apostles taught that they brought the very words of Christ, which were the very words of God, and carried the weight of Holy Scripture. And when you question the morality of the New Testament, you're then questioning the authority of the apostles, and there is no point of having a Bible at all. So young people, this is so foundational, and I encourage you. If you want my notes on this, I will give you my notes gladly. You put them away and you study this, that you can argue this, you can defend this, and you can build your life upon these things. Because the apostles, as they wrote the New Testament scriptures, they wrote the very words of God, given to them by the Spirit through Christ himself. So that leads on to the sermon. And the three things you have in your sermon before you there, first of all, you have the principle You see, understanding understanding these foundations gives us, I think, the right foundation for the exhortation of Paul to Timothy in our text. We haven't heard Paul's words. We weren't entrusted with this the way Timothy was. But the application comes to us in respect to the New Testament Scriptures. That it passes down through the centuries We know the idea of transmission is taught in chapter 2, verse number 2. Faithful men teaching others also. This idea of communicating the word of God through the centuries. But the principle is clear. The church must faithfully defend apostolic truth. Hold fast the form of sound words. That it is the duty of the church to defend tenaciously apostolic truth. Now... Before you hold something fast, you've got to hold it. It's like this word, the word that's used here, is, it's a very, very common word in the original. It's just this, this basic idea of have, having something. But the concept, of course, in, the, in the, the translation is very helpful. It has this idea of having it and never letting it go. You're not getting that. That's mine. But first of all, it's got to be yours. You see, there's some of you perhaps, and you've no care to defend the Bible because the Bible's not yours. It hasn't become yours in, in terms of personal possession. That this is my faith, my doctrine, my convictions. These are things that I'll stake my life upon. And therefore, you're not going to defend it because you haven't taken possession to begin with. But in the presumption that you have taken possession, then you've got to realize that it is your duty again as part of the church. And Jude verse 3 and 4 make that clear. It's the entire church's responsibility to contend for the faith and to do so earnestly. You see, the words that are used here hold fast and then in verse number 14 to keep. The word keep there is to watch, to be on guard, to preserve the implication. It has this idea of of a guard. I'm going to stand watch over the word of God and no one's going to take it away or rob the word of his authority. Of course, it is not our duty to establish the authority of the word, but to hold to it, to defend it. I, I accept, I accept that Spurgeon had a point. He refers to the word of God like a lion. You don't need to defend the lion. You just let the lion loose. But at the same point, It is also clearly taught in the Word of God that we're content for the truth. And we are to defend the Word of God in, in, in some sense. The truth has been delivered to us, and we are not to invent new truth, but to hold fast to and defend the old truth. Now, in light of what we've seen, the form of sound words refers to the New Testament Scriptures, so we are, first of all, to defend the Scriptures. The New Testament included. We are to defend the Word of God. Uh, Through the centuries, the Word of God has been attacked in so many ways. The Roman Catholic Church attacks the Word of God by its traditionalism. Attacking the authority of the Word of God, the Bible is not sufficient. It's not enough. The church must give the Bible its authority. The Bible's authority comes from what it is itself. It is the Word of Christ. And so as we exalt traditions, we have the danger in doing so that we undermine the authority of the Word of God. The Bible is enough. Darwinism, it attacks the scriptures. The idea of evolution being taught is a very attack upon the foundation of the foundation. and Creation being undermined is the idea that the Bible is not accurate. It is not true. It is not able to keep up with modern science. The idea of science has developed in such a degree that, well, the Bible, it is not accurate. Of course, in the late 1800s, German rationalism and modernism attacks the Bible, Well, the Bible's got some parts of God's truth. It contains the Word of God, but it is not the Word of God. And therefore, you've got to be careful because some parts are not as reliable as other parts. It's not entirely true. You can't trust the miracles or the supernatural. These are attacks upon the Bible. We have in the modern day the modern practice of textual criticism, which has uh, some role to play, yes, but it has the idea that the Bible that you have, the James version, is not really what you could have had. If you were around in the 1600s, the Bible you have is not as good as what we have today. Again, it's an undermining of the authority of the Bible in the minds of people. Dangerous attacks. You think of the modern age of ethical relativism. The attacks upon the authority of the Bible. The Bible is not sufficient to guide man through life mistakes. All of these things are attacks upon the Bible. See see how important it is? All of these things that come in the modern world, they're coming as attacks upon the Word of God. We've also got to defend the subject of the Scriptures. You see, when you look at the the line of thought here in 2 Timothy, you'll see there's a a very clear connection. Verse number 9 refers to the Gospel. Remember the Gospel, verse 8? Then referred to verse number 9, Saved us, called us, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace, given in Christ where the world began, manifest by the appearing of Christ, verse number 10. Then verse 11 says, whereunto I am an apostle. Verse 12, for the which cause I suffer these things. And then verse 13, hold fast the form of sound words. They all connect. So the form of sound words is indeed the gospel that Paul has suffered for as an apostle. They all come together. And so we're to hold fast the scriptures as they reveal Christ to us. The sound words, they relate to the Lord, Christ's person, before the world began. The appearing of our Savior, he comes into the world, he is the eternal Son of God, and he takes on our humanity, he might be our Redeemer, we've got to defend that. Please, let me just encourage you, in the next number of weeks, when people are singing and giving out cards and all manner Please take the time to defend tenaciously the virgin birth of Christ. Without it, we have no hope. And if we are going to be those who are holding fast the form of sound words, we're going to hold fast that form of sound words. The truth of Christ's person, His work. He appears and has abolished death, a reference to the cross and the crucifixion. The idea that Christ, Christ died that we might live. The, the doctrine of the atonement and the penal substitution of Christ. He took our punishment on the cross. That's the only way he abolished death because he, he took sin for us. Defending the application. Saved us, called us. Not according to our works. You know, works, works salvation stinks. It's disgusting. It's vile. It's an t- attack upon apostolic doctrine. And we've got to defend it. We've got to defend the truth. Think of our future expectation. We've got to defend that. We believe in eternal life. We believe in resurrection and immortality. We've got to defend the holiness that reflects the call. It's a holy calling. And as we've seen, the four signed words is not only what we believe, it's also the commands by which we live. You see, the church in every generation is called to defend the truth. Not invent it, but to defend it. Now, let me say again a word to our young people here. I don't know where the Lord will take you in your life, where you'll end up, where you'll live. And you may find yourself in a place where you have have no free church to go to. But let me encourage you in one very strong direction. Make sure you're part of what we term, a confessional church. A church that holds to an historic confession of faith. Not a ten-point statement that you could drive a bus through. But a substantial doctrine or statement that says, this is what my church believes. Because it's not inspired, but those that have been derived from the Word of God are helpful as we seek to hold fast to the form of sound words. This is what we believe, and we're going to hold fast to these things. We're not going to move from it, because we're not the first people to read the Bible. And therefore, we we stand upon the shoulders of giants and we say, this is our confession of faith. It's not traditionalism, but confessionalism safeguards and defends the truth. And the Word of God is passed on in that regard. A church can be a true church without a confession of faith. But a church without a confession is weaker. It's weaker without the foundation of a confession that reveals their convictions regarding the Word of God. In some way, holding confession is in many ways the proper application of this verse. Here is my way of holding fast the form of sound words. So if you haven't read our confession of faith, you should go and do so. It's free online. There's copies available. Read your confession of faith and say, this is what the Bible teaches in these important fundamental areas. So we are, yes, to defend absolute truth. And the purpose, and I can do these last two points in a few minutes. The purpose is for the spiritual health of mankind. You see, the truth as revealed by Christ to the apostles, explaining the Old Testament, revealing the gospel, that truth is sound, it is nourishing, it is conducive to spiritual health. Ignorance leads to spiritual harm. Just open your eyes and you see it all around you. Every other worldview is ultimately damaging to self and to society. And you can trace worldviews through the history of time. Deism, a creator God that lets the world go. Well, if that's the case, then why not just be naturalists? We don't actually need a God to explain these things. They just come naturally in evolutionary process. You take the idea of postmodernism, no absolutes, what does that lead to? Moral confusion. You take the Eastern pantheist, you're all gods, you're all authorities. You see, all of these things are damaging to society, and societies based upon these foundations, they are destructive. Look no, form, no, no further to the nihilism of Nazi Germany, a worldview against God leading to society's destruction and downfall. Only biblical Christ-centered theism is truly healthy. It is the right belief leading to right practice that is God's good way, the old paths, the good way wherein we find rest for our souls. Ignorance leads to spiritual harm and neglect leads to spiritual harm. See, we know people in our own context and they've been raised in the things of God. They know there is one God and Christ as the Savior, but they've neglected these things and they find themselves in spiritual harm. The psalmist would sing and pray that thy way may be known upon earth by saving health among all nations. A healthy person, a healthy people are people who are founded upon the gospel. Sound. Doctrine, sound words. If you find yourself, when you say, I'm not healthy, I'm not talking about whether you have a head cold or a chest infection or some other illness. You know in your soul what it's like not to be healthy, to have this restlessness until you realize that things are not right in your soul. Where is health found? It's found in Christ Jesus. That's where health is found. The purpose. The church defends the truth for the spiritual health of mankind. And finally, the practice. We defend the truth in faith and love by the power of the Spirit of God. Of course, faith and love come together. They're in Christ Jesus. They're often used together in the New Testament. We believe the Word. We trust the Lord. We love the Lord. Uh, We are those who defend the truth because of our love for Christ Jesus. There's a cycle here. Know the truth. Love the truth. Guard the truth so that we know the truth, love the truth and guard the truth so that we know the truth, love the truth and guard the truth. These things come in cycles. We guard it so we know it and so we love it. We love it so we guard it that we might know it. And the same is true for the generation to come. We know the truth, we love the truth, we guard the truth so that generation to come might know the truth, love the truth and guard the truth. You get the point. That's what we have to do comes from love for christ jesus that's why we take so much time to seek to preach christ you see the world needs a vibrant church locally this area needs a vibrant church that knows the truth loves the truth and proclaims the truth and defends the truth from all its errors how do we do so by the holy ghost which dwelleth in us we can't do it without the power of the holy ghost so as we think of the awesomeness of our responsibility, what are we among so many? Well, greater is He that is in us than He is in the world. We have the Spirit of God. Well, let's bow together, please, then, in a word of prayer. I appreciate your patience in listening today and working through these things together. I trust it's been a benefit to your soul. Let's all seek God's face. Heavenly Father, May we have faith that is founded upon truth. We thank you for the reminder again that the New Testament itself claims to be the very Word of God, and we believe it to be so. We think of the internal consistency and the beauty of the doctrines, and we thank you, Lord, we have the Word of God in our possession. Help us to be those who know the truth and love the truth, and may it indeed guide all that we think and all that we do. May we walk in thy truth. O oh Lord, it is our great desire, uh, no greater joy than we have, that our children walk in truth. May that be true in our church, may it be true in our families, may it be true in this society. A people that would walk in truth. So bless the word to our hearts today. Help us to pray for these things and to walk humbly with our God. Take us home in safety. Bring us back in the fullness of the Spirit of God this evening.